0: I mean, I look into a lot of technologies as part of the emerging tech team, where really, uh, as my assistant commissioner says, kind of tech agnostic, we're really happy to look into anything. But we really hit green roofs hard because we see them as this kind of almost Pandora's box of urban environmental solutions.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, where we explore the emerging technologies for building greener, healthier, and smarter communities. I'm your host, Nadine Khala. And this week, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Max Lerner, director of the emerging technologies team at the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. When I discovered NYC Parks had an emerging tech team, I knew I had to have Max on. I mean, how many parks and rec departments have emerging tech teams or tech teams at all, or are even really thinking about technology. I knew I had to have on, and I was not disappointed. We had a fascinating conversation. We discussed how his passion for innovation led him to establish the emerging tech team and how it's grown to a think tank of over a hundred scientific visionaries and his commitment to educating the green professionals of the future. Honestly, that would have been enough to fill an entire episode. But through our conversation, I discovered Max also founded a nonprofit, GROW externships. GROW stands for Green Revitalization Outreach Workforce. Max organizes paid externships abroad for aspiring environmental professionals to rapidly grow their skills and apply them in areas of need. They've organized externships in Japan, Costa Rica, Hawaii, Kenya, and there are many more to come. So if you're listening and you're interested in developing and applying your green skills, after listening to this conversation with Max, I wanted to sign up for one of these externships. So make sure to check out www.growexternships.org. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Max. Hi, Max. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast.
0: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Very exciting. (laughs) Huh.
1: <laughs> Well, thanks so much for coming on. Um, this has been a little while in the works because uh, I, the reason that we got introduced is because uh, Derek Von Real from Tree Tracker, my very, very first guest to ever come on the show, season one, episode one, uh, he mentioned you as an interesting character in the <laughs> space of nature and technology. And obviously, when we heard that, we knew we had to make this happen. And it only took until season four to make it happen. But here we are.
0: Hey, you're here. Yeah, I heard about it from a friend. They're like, oh, I heard your name on a podcast. I was like, oh, really? And I had to do a little bit of internet digging, and I found it. I was like, oh, wow, it's wild. Oh, there's Dirk. I'm really happy we looped this one together.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, likewise, likewise. Um, where to start? Uh, you lead the emerging tech team at New York City Parks. Maybe that's a good place to start. Tell us a little bit about New York City. Are you from New York City?
0: Yes, which is increasingly
1: rare. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, have you were you obsessed with New York City's parks growing up?
0: I mean, I love parks. Uh rather, I growing up in New York, I think it was almost kind of stressful that there really wasn't too much nature outside of parks. So mm. as I was kind of coming along in age and starting to think about career work and whatnot in, in high school, I got excited about this idea of potentially being able to expand green infrastructure in urban centers like my home city. And I really started down this path doing greener work at a young age, about 20 years ago when I was in high school, doing some of the frontline research with NASA to just kind of really verify data that was already very clear to every person, but just not grounded in US practice, just plants on a roof. Do they cool the roof? Do they suck up rainwater? Do they do all right? We knew these things were true, but no one had done it in the US yet. It was more of a European thing, and it really
1: shot me down on a road. On that green so green roofs are really the passion to start. Absolutely. And why and why green roofs? Cuz green roofs are an interesting I feel like they're an interesting kind of space within green infrastructure. You kind of um People seem to be very opinionated about green roofs. It brings up a lot of opinions, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do you love about green roofs and what do you see as some of the challenges?
0: I mean, I look into a lot of technologies as part of the emerging tech team. We're really, uh, as my assistant commissioner says, kind of tech agnostic. We're really happy to look into anything. But we really hit green roofs hard because we see them as this kind of almost Pandora's box of urban environmental solutions unlike solar, which is awesome, but is really just mostly for generating sustainable power or a number of other things I could name. Green roofs are essentially building an ecosystem. It does so many environmental services simultaneously through one project. So it's a really nice, tidy, quick, and relatively affordable way to really make an impact for cities, which are constantly plagued by a wide range of urban environmental problems. High pollution, urban heat island effect, combined sewer overflow events, you have lack of pollinator corridors. It's just generally stressful that there aren't that many plants. There's a lot of stuff that green address simultaneously. But I hear you that sometimes they aren't the easiest solution to implement in all scenarios. Mm.
1: And walk us through the emerging tech team at New York City Parks. Because when I when I saw that, when I discovered that New York City even had an emerging tech team, I mean, I was amazed, shocked and amazed.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the Emerging Tech team is something that I created in collaboration with the Citywide Services Division, which is one of the many pieces of the Parks Department. Parks Department is a huge, huge, huge agency with thousands of employees, and they're the city's largest landowner. They own 14% of the city by area, which is kind of a nebulous number. It's over... 30,000 acres, 30,000 football fields, or wherever you want to kind of package that in to kind of make it visually make sense. It's an enormous footprint. And it's a really ethically diverse footprint in that it's not just like squirted away into the middle of Manhattan. It's in every borough, and every nook and cranny, in every part of the city. And the emerging tech team, specifically as part of the sustainable facilities division, which is part of citywide services, so it's, a, it's kind of a, a nesting doll type thing. We are primarily focused in piloting new and interesting technologies. A vendor like Dirk, for example, when I got involved with Tracker, he we read an article about his work. We thought it was really interesting, so we set up a meeting with him. My intern team reviewed his technologies, saw what promise it had. In his case, for example, the Parks Department coordinates the tree census every 10 years on the fifth year, so 2005, 2015, and the next one will be in a few years. We have this massive, massive, massive citizen science project. It takes thousands of New Yorkers and nearly two years of really amazing, but obviously very crunchy, monotonous boots on the ground work to like assess every tree and see what's the current health of it. And doesn't need to be replaced. And what species is it? That's great work, but it takes a lot of people power. And the problem I see with it is it takes so long to do that that data Kind of ages in real time. So when we finally publish the report, maybe a year or even two, or possibly even three years after we do the census, a tree could have hit a car. Uh, well, I hope a tree isn't hit a car. A car could have hit a tree. And da, 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 da. It's challenging to work with data that's being processed in such a slow speed. So Dirk's Tree Tracker Project, this idea of almost like a Google Streetcar is zooming down the block and scanning the tree and giving us all the data we need was really attractive. So things like that, we read an article, we hear about a vendor doing a new thing, we learn about something independently, or we even have our own idea, we pilot those things in park spaces, on parks, facilities, to really not only internally vet those ideas, see if they have potential, really put some skin in the game in terms of actually testing and verifying, but also in a really interesting and wonderful way, which is one of the many reasons why I love working for parks, there's a lot of consumer confidence we're able to build there because we're a city agency. We're this unbiased and unmonetized machine. Our Mm -hmm. finances aren't affected by what we do. We're baseline to the city budget. We're not monetized through our work. Our work can be accessed by anyone. You can, under FOIL law, freedom of information law, you can just ask for all reports. We're not doing anything secret. We have no secret agenda that we can possibly bake into. it. We're really just for the love of the game of sustainability, trying different things. So people can have a lot of faith when they see, oh, the parks department did something and they did my neighborhood. Wow, because we have inevitably a building or a parks in your neighborhood. And it's a really great way for people to get up to speed on topics, which may not be your every person's idea of how can i improve my house or how can i improve my neighborhood because these are emerging technologies are interesting new things that maybe aren't ready to hit the streets because they're still perhaps too expensive for every person to buy but the parks department can afford it or maybe it's still a little bit uncertain the benefits around it it's something that's really radical or something from abroad that we want to just kind of get into the rigmarole of what people accept as good ideas for the sciences it's a really cool collab and i'm really thankful to have the opportunity to spearhead that for about the past eight years uh, with the agency and with a huge 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 laundry list of volunteers from all sectors so this constant rotation of developing professionals of interns and volunteers from different work programs from different universities from graduate programs transitioning professionals even professionals coming out of retirement they're really enthusiastic about doing good work for the environment it's a really great accelerator for professionals as well as a great place to do a lot of good work to kind of start to lay the foundation of what we hope to be things that once we pilot them if it works well we can roll it out across our massive footprint or if it doesn't we can kind of help with this consumer confidence in that rather than the vendor themselves saying our product's great the different parties can come to the park store and say, hey, can I see that product in person? Hey, can I get a report on that product? Hey, what do you guys think about this? And we can say, oh yeah, we tried that. It's over here.
1: Yeah, it's almost, um, I think that's why it makes it so exciting and so interesting is because even just looking at who I've had on the podcast, so much of them have been those vendors. They have been those entrepreneurs and CEOs that have all these really, really exciting solutions. Mm. Um, and it's rare that I get the opportunity to speak to someone who actually works within municipal governments, trying to make those things happen. Not only trying to make those things happen, but is a little bit of a tech cheerleader who's also <laughs> open to looking at what the possibilities of that are. Mm. Um what would you say over the last eight years, some of the technologies that you're most excited about in this space?
0: I mean, I love green roofs, but if we're going to go a little bit past that, it's definitely, I think, to frame that. I think one of the coolest things is looking at, as many architects and engineers will look at a, a built system, a building as a whole system. It's really interesting to see, not just kind of isolating like, oh, what's a cool technology for my roof or what's a cool technology for my building facade or what's a cool technology to put on the curb, but understanding this, like, essentially ecosystem that the built environment constructs. So you're looking at the whole building envelope, you're looking at the whole building system. So in that sense, some of my favorite technologies are kind of the ones that kind of click together. So like solar panels and green roofs really complement each other very nicely. Then in that, green roofs and blue infrastructure complement each other really nicely. There's a lot of curbside technology I've seen that is cool, but perhaps too expensive, like solar roadways or piezoelectric squares, basically pressure plates that you step on, and it generates a small fraction of power. But if they were like in the middle of Times Square, it would generate a ton of power. Stuff like that is cool, but maybe not ready for prime time yet. But it's cool seeing like how far out the wave is, where it's coming, and how close it is to the shore. Because inevitably, those things will become common practice. It's just perhaps not yet
1: sure yeah i think that's a lot of it too right is Ooh. is figuring out which technologies are going to make sense when because there's a lot of different factors that have to come together to make that happen sure. but take something like like derek's technology for example with tree tracker which for right. those of you that that missed the episode is essentially as max said um a google street view esque like car which essentially has a lidar scanner on on its roof although they put them on backpacks too if you can't get a car into a certain area and it essentially gives you a complete 3d model of everything and then what Tree Tracker has done is created an algorithm to mask out everything except for the trees. And you're essentially left with a 3D point cloud, as they call it, of a digital twin almost of all of your different trees, which can give you information about their location, their condition, uh, the tree diameter, the trunk diameter, the crown volume, all these different things, really everything with the exception of species, which I know is something that Dirk would love to do in the future, but it's not quite there yet. Um, So take a technology like that. I know you went through it. Is that something that New York City parks would consider using?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really amazing way. And kind of in a similar vein, drones, although uh, legally speaking, because of uh, certain regulations and safety reasons, which makes sense, we're not there. Yeah, it's difficult, but it makes sense. Like We send staff to facilities to do facility inspections. For one, you're open to human error. Did your eyes see that little mark on the roof? Or you're inspecting a giant facade of the building. Did you see that one brick that maybe the pointing was off? That could be an incredibly dangerous hazard. But if you're human senses didn't catch it versus a machine that can just scan the facade of the building and say, oh, one brick is slightly a smidge off center is really not only a thing that we can do as a greater vote of confidence, but super, super, super expedited. So I see stuff like that Uh, really gets me excited. I don't think we're exactly there with that stuff, but I definitely see it as something very viable and very much on the horizon, hard hard to say when, Uh, one of the ones I would say is more on the cusp besides green which i think are about to really see uh, their their time in the sunlight is in vessel composting systems i really like a lot i know the city especially during this kind of up and down period with funding during more peak time of covid there were a lot of budget cuts in 2020 as COVID came in, we really had to reassess our priorities in a crisis situation. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the funding for municipal composting was removed at that time. We're getting back there, which is really exciting. But even before that, when we were looking at ways that we could make composting more efficient, which is a really big piece of the sustainability puzzle, we might think that maybe compost is irrelevant to your home or to a business that doesn't have any horticulture or agricultural angles to it. Uh, But really, if we just look at the raw kind of pie chart of where your garbage is, about a third of it is always food scraps and organics and things that can be composted. So we're essentially taking a third of our waste footprint out of the waste stream if we can really get a handle on composting. And some of the more modern and streamlined ways we can manage composting is through in-vessel composting machines, which is essentially, imagine like a, a giant tank that essentially automates every piece of the composting process turning it keeping it hot keeping it the right moisture level making sure there's microorganisms in there making sure it's aerated all the good things that you want you could of course have your backyard pile of compost and turn it every so often and eventually it will kind of turn it will slowly break down and become less food scraps and more familiar compost but that takes a lot of time whereas you can automate all those pieces of the puzzle and really crank out compost and really break down our waste footprint in a dramatic way very, very quickly. So we work with a lot of interesting companies. I'm a big fan of eco who I've worked with for many, many years. There are a number of others that make these in-vessel machines, this vessel that is of varying scales depending on how much waste you anticipate, your building's gonna be putting into it every day. And it really breaks it down in a hyper-quick manner, in a very efficient and very predictable manner, even if you're not looking to use compost in your organization's practice, it can just save a lot on your building's waste management fees, which is a super cool save. Mm -hmm. And then kind of like I was talking about before, looking at buildings as this kind of full system model, I think as we really dig down into sustainability and resiliency of cities, we need to look at cities as a more full system model. We can't act in these little islands that every building's a separate organism. If your office building that makes computer software probably doesn't have any use for compost, but you have diverted a third of your waste, so you saved a lot of money, maybe you can put a fraction of that savings towards sending that compost to a local park or to a green market or to maybe another business that might even pay you for that compost. There's like a lot of really easy dots we can connect once we start working together.
1: Right. And so um, about this composting so how much because I know city of Amsterdam where I live now mm. they've tried to do a lot with composting but the problem that they've always run into is that Amsterdam like I think New York has a big problem with rats and other mm. pests how does this composting system fit into um, the urban wildlife side of things
0: it's a great question mean, kind of the the magic of it Whereas standard composting, like your backyard compost pile, uh, ideally under what would be optimal composting criteria that compost would be really hot, that compost would be be turned quite frequently, it would be aerated enough. Usually compost actually gets really, really hot. When compost is really doing its magic, it's 150, 160, it could be 170 degrees. It's really not something that you're going to see flies or maggots or rats in all these kind of urban predators that we're scared of. But the fact of the matter is your backyard compost pit, you accidentally threw an entire watermelon in there or whatever. And then you haven't turned it because you were too busy and suddenly it cools down or it's the off season or something. And there's just a lot of food scraps in there and they're really available and they're not particularly hot. So there is this window of error human error, just kind of like the building facade where Mm. we can introduce urban pests into the mix. They can kind of get involved in there. And so in-vessel composters, besides just like drones, erasing that kind of human error window, of course, at the expense that it's more expensive than just making a giant pile in your backyard and having people power to flip it over. But it really eliminates the entire issue of smell of urban uh, predators. You have this basically tank that has moving blades and it's super hot and it's aerated in a predictable way, you can really control the variables there. So when you really manage the system in such a precise manner, you can account for that in a very real way. But I think we're still, to your point, like in a period where we deal with a lot of these concerns, these like surface level concerns around sustainable technology very frequently because they're still not in the common verbiage. When someone's building a building, they're not thinking like, should I put a green roof on this? Uh, Most people aren't thinking about that. So we're mostly retrofitting buildings. We're adding green roofs and posts. People are concerned that, oh, is the building gonna cause leaks? Are the plants gonna dig through the roof? Uh, Is it gonna weigh too much? It's because these aren't yet common terms. So there's also a lot, most of what I would kind of consider my job, although we are on the front end, very much vetting these new emerging technologies, on the back end, we really see ourselves as educators. Most of the stuff that we've had, the lion's share of it is great. It's awesome. It's not that expensive in the grander scheme of things. It works. But because it's not so readily known about, it really goes a long way to make this kind of learning laboratory system that we do. My office, the City Services building, has the world's most diverse green roof on it. We have over 45 different types of green roofs on the same building, which is super, super unconventional. Not an economic... <laughs> sound decision but we do it to educate because people want to see oh this that and the other type of system in action right. managed in perpetuity so we do a lot of that to kind of get around these questions not that the answers are so far out of reach but that people really haven't readily accepted them because these aren't just you yet in our lexicon of like oh here's how we're going to make this building a full system model how we're going to make it uh, net zero whichever variables we're trying to tweak for it and and it's our energy and it's our water and it's our waste
1: right right actually to lead on to that that might be a good question is what does the typical day look like for the head of the emerging tech team at at new york city parks i'm i'm seeing holding different sensors trying that maybe teaching a class i mean what is what does a typical day look like uh it, it can really
0: vary radically i think it also depends if i'm in the states or not. I am often doing a lot of outreach education. I'm leading tours. I'm constructing actual green roofs or white coating buildings, or I'm doing different technical presentations for different divisions to kind of teach the capital team about something or to work with the university to help graduate students on some kind of frontline research or potentially in the agency's efforts and my personal efforts To help with career development, we open up our doors essentially as broad as possible to bring as many interns as we can possibly manage to really get boots on the ground and cut their teeth on some interesting projects. So we are constantly rotating out dozens and dozens and dozens of developing professionals. We really do that with a focus on them getting firsthand experience in this and really quickly building the resume because as I think you've (laughs) sussed out, we are constantly moving. There's so much to be done. There's something wacky and new every day, whether it's a build, a research, or a presentation, a lecture series, or auditing a facility. We also do a lot of work out of the agency. My nonprofit groups also, in an effort to further that sort of career development window with an eye to giving people paid experience in the field, also take them to different ecological hubs all around the world, to further develop their career and to further diversify the environmental science field itself is kind of the two tenants there. So I take this call right now from Japan. It's much later for me than it is for
1: you. Um, I was just going to say, yeah, it's uh, it's it's early morning for me, and it's it's late uh, late late evening for you because you're currently in Japan. <laughs> Worth it. And um, what? So what? What brought you to Japan? I've been
0: working in Japan for several years. My nonprofit, uh, Grow Externships, uh, really has a national, international focus in giving developing professionals paid experience to really get them over that chasm of really starting up your career in the environmental sciences. It's a relatively new career. It's honestly pretty hard to get a, it's not so hard to get a job somewhere in the spectrum of this field, but to get like a real career sure. level position that can, you can actually survive on is a much more challenging affair. It takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of sorting out your priorities and a lot of really building up your professional credentials to get you one of the still developing roles in this field. And, and to be frank, it's the people that can generally weather that long period where it's kind of up and down chaos trying to find your footing professionally It's not the most diverse group of people. So we've really buckled down to give people these early and paid and really, really intensive experiences, three weeks to a month uh, in Japan, in Costa Rica, in Kenya, in Hawaii, we're developing some work in Pennsylvania to give them these paid intensives to really see kind of like I'm saying, like a day in the life in this field could be radically different from day to day. Mm. It could be building a trail. It could be doing urban farming. It could be fighting against pieces of climate change, working on erosion control measures, working on species loss, working on developing pollinator corridors, working on educational outreach for the public. They do a lot of work in Japan, uh, specifically in the most rural portions of Japan, because uh, of the many places, the thing that brought me here is general pieces of The puzzle in Japan is it's generally aging population and sustainability, although we talk about this in in America and in Europe, sustainability is pretty cool. It's an exciting new field. People are enthusiastic about getting into it. It's not such an attractive field in Japan yet. I think we're a couple of years out. I am, of course, riding that wave now. I can see the wave coming into the shore, but it's still not super popular. It's more normal to get a business job to go to a city core basically there's a lot of people leaving rural areas moving to urban areas going for a largely tech job suffice to say although there's certainly plenty of exceptions there's a lot of rural land that is not really getting taken care of there's an aging population that resident population rural areas. We're currently in Shimani Prefecture and Tatori Prefecture in Sanin. These are the least and second least popular prefectures. We have a resident population that's generally aging out of the capacity to farm and all the younger people Mm -hmm. here are generally leaving this area. So there's a lot of open land that there's not enough people power to take care of. So the Mm -hmm. idea of bringing motivated developing professionals from all over the world to really do super impactful work and to really make Huge, huge tangible differences in terms of popularizing organic food here, in terms of making sure that land is not lost and land is accessible to people, it makes a big difference both for locals as well as for the careers of the people that can really make these transformative projects come to life. So that really is super exciting for me to be one of the many stewards that can make that adventure possible. and It could be just one of the days in my life.
1: That is really, really, really cool. I didn't even realize. I mean, I, I mean, here I was thinking that you know, with emerging tech, leading the emerging tech team at NYC Parks um, was a full time job. I mean, is a full time job, and it sounds like you do this next to that. I mean, how do you how do you balance the two?
0: Uh, I do this when I'm off duty. So when I'm on leave, I'll do this at, work at 10 p.m. in the evening. Yeah, at 10 p.m. <laughs> in the, middle of the country. <laughs> commute between (laughs) Europe and Japan. No, it's definitely a juggle. Uh, It certainly complements the work in that essentially a lot of the volunteers we have at parks are pre-vetted, so we are confident in their abilities or they've worked with our – Yeah, and then we bring them to these projects already with the confidence that we know that they're hard workers. But it is a bit of a challenge kind of structuring that work in such a way. So we work in kind of off-season windows and whatnot, and we work, of course, when I'm not on duty with the agency, I'll generally be – on duty, doing these trips all over the world with cohorts of diverse developing professionals that are really excited to get involved in this field. And so we'll do probably about three of these trips a year. We're hoping to do more in the future. It's really gratifying, wonderful, amazing thing to be a part of. I'm certainly thrilled to do it. And it's really, we've already seen results in that we're helping these different communities. We are bringing people to these places that may have never had the opportunity to travel, let alone to such distant places. We're seeing them get jobs right out of the gate. We're getting to their next level of academia right post-program. And we're able to pay them for this work, which not only helps them, but also kind of is another level of merit on a resume versus having an unpaid yeah. volunteer role.
1: Hey, it's me, Nadina. Just popping in here to encourage you to take me outside. Listen to the podcast as you stroll through your local park, take a bike ride along the river, or ski down a mountain, whatever suits you. I know it's what the sponsor of today's episode would want. This podcast is brought to you by the Nature Conservancy's Global Coalition, Nature for Climate. The discussion around climate change can be overwhelming and honestly downright daunting. The Nature for Climate Coalition focuses on what we can do rather than what's been lost. Its partners, including the Nature Conservancy, work together to get natural climate solutions such as avoiding deforestation in the tropics and restoring wetlands and sustainably managing forests implemented across the public and private sectors. Restoring nature is one of our best chances for mitigating climate change and also creating happy, healthy, and green communities for future generations. And that's exactly what we like to hear here at the Internet of Nature podcast. Find out how at natureforclimate.org. Okay, now get yourself outside and back to the show. Yeah, I think because that's it too, just that something as simple as just getting paid to do the work is something that just adds so much legitimacy to it as well. And it, it also creates, I think, market demand for these professions as well. There is a a massive trend that I haven't really gotten the opportunity to speak about on the podcast is the fact that we are running into massive labor shortages when it yeah. comes to green professionals, when it comes to urban foresters, arboriculturalists, uh park staff. Even, I mean, can you can you speak into that trend that we've seen and how this can potentially help bridge that gap?
0: Yeah. I mean, for a number of reasons, we could point to COVID. We could point to just the general complexity of getting into this field. We can point to the newness of it. And I I look at a lot of other more formal fields, like being a doctor, for example, even if we're not doctors, we kind of know what that track looks like. You have to do Mm -hmm. undergrad and graduate doctorate, and then you have to do a residency. And it's a whole, it's a known track and it's kind of known how many years it's going to take and it's known how much time and money it takes. But if you're willing to go down that road, you can generally do it whereas i kind of alluded to my journey to become environmental sciences is this complete wild roller coaster ride that i had to weather roles that didn't pay me anything or paid me next to nothing because they weren't career level moves there was among mm-hmm. a number of organizations it's a hectic field to get involved and in. i think we're seeing a lot of passion towards the environmental science which is great there's a lot of enthusiasm especially in the us and europe It's super exciting field. People have heard the call of climate change and all these other variables that are really threatening our generation, the next generation, the writings on the wall, how bad things are environmentally and people are enthused to do more meaningful work, but it can be intimidating. I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of times just very exhausting work, long days, physical labor, which I think can scare off a lot of people. Hmm. I think, I think. probably one of the biggest things I experience in a lot of my professional avenues, at the end of the day the work honestly doesn't have as many bars to entry as people I think assume. Not to say that it doesn't take a while to get here, but to say like a green roof, for example, a green roof from an outsider's perspective looks very complicated. You assume you need to have training, you need to be an architect, you need to know building calculations and whatnot. But the actual installation of it is very simple. It's almost like making a lasagna. Like, you know what layers go next, 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 and you kind of know essentially what it's supposed to look like. It's not so hard. And a lot of farming as well, a lot of horticultural and agricultural work and land management work, it looks really intimidating. People understandably like think like, oh, farmers work really hard. And yes, they do, but it's not impossible to become a farmer if you're enthusiastic about it. If you're willing to put in the energy and willing to learn a little bit, it can really go a long way. And I think- yeah. Opportunities like this, windows where people can kind of dip a toe in the water, do what is very much an intensive. So we'll be out with a group of people that may, uh, that have probably never been to the places we're going to. Probably have never done any really, they have relative work. Maybe they have kind of like some academic chops related or they volunteered with me in the agency, but never anything like this. So they're essentially completely green to the work that they're going to do on the ground doing it essentially for four weeks straight with maybe only a day or two off. We have afternoons off to do cultural activities and to see the location itself, but really, really aggressive experience. And though by the end of the first week or so, you kind of lose because people are jet lagged and people are kind of coming to terms and like, oh, this is really hard work. But they're experts by the end of it, and it's really amazing to see that transformation. And I think it does a lot for them too, in terms of their confidence, because it can initially seem very overwhelming. Like, what? Well, I have to wake up super early, and I have to do a lot of physically intensive work, and I'm not so used to that. And by the end of it, they're like, Psh, "Let's do it."
1: Easy, right? <laughs> That's good stuff. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, these different programs, I mean, you mentioned a whole host of different locations that you go to. Is it mainly American students and recent graduates that are going on these programs, or are they open to international students as well?
0: It's open to anyone. The location of the student isn't the relevant variable that we're really trying to cater towards. Mm-hmm. Our, our real focus, uh, as mentioned, is really building up people's careers. That's a massive pillar here that we want to make sure that people have the opportunities to get paid work early on in their career, which we've just consistently seen hyper-accelerates their ability to get real career jobs. Of course, a month-long position isn't gonna be your full-time career, but it it goes a long way. And the other piece Mm -hmm. is really diversity and inclusion in the field. So it's not so much, we're not so concerned about where you're from, but really prioritizing BIPOC members of the group, uh, women in the sciences, LGBTQIA plus members, those are real strong variables. That we consider in this mix to again make sure that the field itself has more diverse sciences in it that the scientists that we're seeing build out the environmental sciences which i really love as a field there are a lot of sciences you can get involved in professionally you could be a physicist you can be a chemist uh, but a lot of the what we call hard sciences not in the sense that they're more difficult but like they're established they're solid You're probably not gonna make too many radical changes to like physics or biology in your career. They're essentially established. Whereas we have these, what we kind of formally build as like social sciences, is these constantly evolving sciences. The environmental science field is cool because it's all earth and we all have an equal say in how the earth performs and what we should do with it. And it's all of our responsibility by the same hand to steward it in a resilient and sustainable manner. And it's really interesting because you can really kind of change the game on environmental science very fast. Suddenly someone makes an interesting tech revelation. They oh, my God, this is like the coolest way to build a building ever. It's like you may very well change the game for urban structure or something. The environment, our priorities and how we steward the environment, how we make the built environment constantly change. And it's because we have so many interesting voices entering that equation. So it's it's really critical to our survival and to our growth that those voices are as diverse as possible in terms of the range of their passions. I think the careers, I really like that, although we do take a lot of people from like the more specific sciences, it's a nebulous field. There's sustainability in every professional avenue, buildings, engineers, researchers, Professionals of all stripes need to make sure that their organization, that their personal life, their professional life, that all these aspects kind of gel in this idea of what sustainability means to the world. So it's a valuable thing to get some exposure to, and we're seeing more immersion of other fields, kind of every Fortune 500 company, it's a corporate sustainability officer you need to have someone in every major organization that has a finger on the pulse of sustainability, even if Mm -hmm. the organization itself isn't focused on environmental work. So it's really exciting to see these voices coming from like, uh, from big tech or from software engineering, or from the arts, and seeing where they're coming in terms of like, what does it mean for, I don't know, computer uh, processing chip company to like be sustainable, like how can they do it? And how is this relevant to their business practices? No one can really escape the inevitability that we all have to do better for the planet. And it, it's really great to see this diverse mix of professionals coming there. So suffice to say, we really focus on in the, the regionality of the people playing in this project is not so relevant besides the fact that we want to make sure that when people are going on these trips that they're not from the place we're going to, because I think there's a big impact, not only getting paid to do work, but the next level of that is to be doing field work, to be going abroad to do work, to be going to different places to do work, really shows a level of professional responsibility and credibility in and of itself that's saying to an organization, like, not only are you going to go to the office every day, and not only are you getting your deliverables, but you're responsible enough to do really dramatically impactful work out of the office, out of major supervision, out of your managerial hierarchy. So we we do focus on the regionality of our applicants for for that piece to make sure that they're not from the
1: place itself that we're going to. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, on, on that note, in terms of being able to be outside, I mean, that for me, when I chose to study ecology originally for my bachelor's degree I was like I was sold just when someone said yeah you do you know you do yeah sure you're in the lab some of the time but most of your field work is outside I'm like Mm -hmm. sold I mean anything that you can do to to get to get yourself more outside I mean that seemed incredibly exciting to me and um is there like an an average age in these cohorts are they relatively younger students do you also have more seasoned professionals that 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 take part as well
0: it's a pretty broad mix. I would say one thing that uh, somewhat controls the age demographics is when we coordinate the trips, Not, I, you might not be able to take a month off in the middle of the year to do something unrelated. So we do see a lot of students developing professionals like in their undergrad and their graduate and postgraduate, but it's mm-hmm. completely open age-wise. So we've had people of all ages join the program. I think timing sometimes can play some role in how much time someone can commit to some of these cohorts, but it's certainly not a variable that we mean to encourage as a limiting factor. So we do try to, in that vein, run a lot of these trips throughout the year to make sure that there's a number of windows, both on major holidays, like summer vacation or Christmas vacation, as well as outside of those holidays for people that aren't on the academic schedule.
1: Right. Right. And how, I'm just fascinated by how this all works. So how are you, are you going on, on all of these trips? Or do you have a team that you kind of send out to dispatch or how does that work?
0: I am on all of them, at least for now. I imagine that as I go down the road, I won't be able to attend every trip because hopefully we'll be doing even more than three a year. We've been doing, I'm currently on our 10th trip. Uh, we started wow. in 2019. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's a That's monumental so cool. one. Thank you. We have different teams for different locations. We have kind of a ground team at each site, and we also Mm. have coordinators that we have that we dispatch from New York. And there's also kind of these two tiers of externs that go on these trips. It's both the developing professionals, and sometimes we actually do bring people back for a second round, and when they come back for the second round, there'll be a field coordinator with me. So that not only Mm. gives some real structure to the program and gives kind of a track for people to say, it's not this just one and done thing. We have some people both dovetailing to do it multiple times and they really understand the process. So they're able to start building some managerial qualities very, really, very early in their career, get an even larger honorarium for doing even more work than your average extern and really take on a big piece of this project. And some people are actually just dovetailing off and saying like, Oh my God, this is an amazing place. This was a really transformative experience. I'm not done learning here. We are seeing more and more people just stay in the locations that we do these projects in. So we help them to get set up there if they want to stay for an extended stay or extended work stay, help them with housing and job placement and whatnot. And that's been really exciting Mm -hmm. to see, too.
1: Holy. And is it, this is just, this is so cool. I just did not know. If, I thought we were just going to talk about the emerging tech team, Max, but this <laughs> is really taken a turn. And this is really, really, really interesting stuff. Cause I just, it's so, it's so important. I mean, cause this is a, a massive issue that's facing this sector on a much broader level. And I truly believe that this is these kinds of experiences can absolutely Make your career and set you on a completely different path. I mean, my I, I was able to go during my bachelor's. I think it was the second year, ten yeah, more than ten years ago. At this yeah. point, took part in it was a it was it was out just outside of Quito in in Ecuador in the cloud forest. It was like this this yes. trail they were doing this trail development area. Yeah. So basically, I was responsible for two things. Mm-hmm. One during the day making the trails, building the trails, which was incredibly difficult, but very rewarding work. I mean, there's nothing like there not being a trail. And then at the end of the day, seeing, you know, however many tens of meters you were able to build Mm -hmm. at the end of the day was incredibly uh, rewarding. And then Mm -hmm. in the evening, I would help kind of the local team that wanted to attract more ecotourism with translation of different brochures and that kind of stuff. And it was, it was an incredible experience. And I, I remember thinking then, you know, I wish all of my fellow students got an opportunity to do something like this because it, mm. it, it totally changed how you put the stuff that you're learning in, in the classroom into practice. Mm. And yes, there was some fieldwork opportunities during school, but nothing like, you know, a multi-week, super intensive trip. Mm. How do you go about vetting the locations that you want to go to?
0: We do. There's kind of a structure to finding new sites. Usually I'll bring a core team to the initial site. I will personally vet not only the partners, but the actual work. I'll do several days in the life with the different partners doing the work myself to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that Mm -hmm. the partners are in good clip, that they're aligned with our values here. I'll bring some of our board or some of our really vetted externs that have come with me on numerous, numerous, numerous trips. Some of the trips, even, we started one of our more recent ones mm-hmm. is in Monteverde and we're also working in the cloud forest. So we do a lot of the similar stuff that you're doing and that cool. program was actually designed by one of our former externs that really graduated on and fell in love with the idea of field wow. work. And kind of to your earlier point, I, I really see this progression in terms of how people prioritize They're working realities, and really, as you mentioned, this allure of working outdoors is really entering the strong meta of like people don't want to just have a desk job for the whole life. So there's this healthy balance of being in and out of office, of seeing the world, and also having some structure to actually do some desk work. And, And I really see, and I think during COVID, when we saw more people practicing telework, and like practicing more self-care in their day-to-day cycles as they kind of control their work schedule that that's really progressing in a good way. So this works becoming more and more attractive. People are getting more enthusiastic and seeking out more opportunities to work outdoors through these sort of opportunities. But so I'll go to the site and I'll really set up the housing. I'll set up the partner network. I'll set up different projects out here. I just. It's like meetings, 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 and doing days of the life. But we met with a green roof manufacturer in Japan. One of the it's very, very unique to have that here. There aren't so many green roof mm. vendors out here. We went to Paradise Park uh, in Totori Prefecture, which is the least uh, populated, most rural prefecture of Japan. So we're in um, the middle of hyper rural Japan. Uh, We have housing there that the owner built themselves. They built uh, a coffee shop many, many years ago uh, out of a fully wood building that they built on their own over three years. And the coffee shop didn't do so well because it was very rural. So they turned into a guest house for this program and we'll stay there and we'll work with them. We make sure that that's a solid setup. We're investigating new land that we can steward. There's a lot of kind of passing on of land To new generations and opening up land access to different communities and different parts of the community that might be enthusiastic to kind of dip a toe in farming and gardening, but the land has to be prepared because perhaps it's been abandoned for decades. Or like with Hawaii, we had lots of to an earlier question you had, there was this labor shortage. They didn't have so many people that were taking care of community gardens and they became severely overgrown. And when we think of community gardens, like crank that up to 11 because we're talking in Hawaii. So someone might have had like a mango tree or something, like a full fruit tree that has grown and there right. are a regular <laughs> tree canopy in the space. So it makes it very difficult for people want to use those very rare community plots, but they're just overgrown. And so going in there to really do a blitz and clean those out, does a huge service for the community Saying so say, now we can actually use these and we can, it is accessible to us. You've kind of gotten over this hurdle where it mm-hmm. seemed. Impossible for us to start farming. It seemed impossible for us to do community gardening, but you did one solid day of work with a large, hyper-intensive team, which really you get this order of magnitude of work because you're bringing people yeah. in there just there to tear things up and make things great. And you have a critical mass of them all tackling away, and suddenly it's like you do that before and after. It's like wow, this garden's totally serviceable, and people come to terms and they're comfortable with yeah. now working the land, and now suddenly you have local stewards. So it's it's really beautiful cycle. Yeah, we we will do those uh, kind of site audits for all the sites. I don't know if you're familiar with Woofing, if the program you mentioned was a Woofing program.
1: It wasn't, but I am familiar with Woofing. Yeah, maybe for the listeners, explain what it is. I mean, it's like essentially, what is this? Worldwide Organic Farming. Farming. Yeah. What does the second O stand for? Organization?
0: Worldwide Organic. uh, We could Google it now. (laughs) To be frank, I mean, I don't know. And I, I don't know because I'm not the biggest fan of wolfing. When wolfing's good, to mm. be fair, wolfing is really good. But the challenge that I saw when I was starting to come up with this program is that when wolfing's bad, it can be really, really bad. And to your last question, that's part of the problem. There really isn't a lot of... Vetting I've seen in woofing. There are some amazing people on the woofing platform. I thought that's what you're
1: gonna say. Yeah. yeah. No, it's like a thing where I'm sure. You know, who knows how many percentage of the the the. You know, th- so basically for the people that don't know, uh, woofing is this this platform where any you know farmers or estate owners or land managers around the world can put up jobs essentially they're mostly volunteer jobs where typically you get room and board um for doing the work so that's another thing right it's typically not paid so typically you get just paid. Paid, paid in accommodations almost never paid almost never paid and it's kind of like you know the a, craigslist in a sense that you don't really know what you're getting and yeah there's some some fantastic people on craigslist but there's also some total weirdos so it's so i I completely understand the importance of vetting these processes because the thing is if you if you go and you take the time and you go to one of these experiences and it sucks or it's weird or or worse it's dangerous um you're not going to do it again it's going to ruin that experience for you
0: yeah And it falls apart on both sides. I mentioned it before. So there's vetting the applicants. Uh, I usually will have worked with them in the past. They volunteered with me or we'll do a kind of intensive interview. We'll talk about their professional goals and what they've done in the past and where that aligns with the sites. So making sure that the people, especially because they're traveling great distances to go to these sites, you don't want to bring someone halfway around the world and suddenly figure out that they're a bad match. Mm -hmm. And the sites as well, like I was saying, we want to make sure that the work is something that we feel comfortable with people that maybe have no background in this no actual boots on the ground experience doing, make sure that the housing is adequate, make sure that there's cultural immersion opportunities, that it's not just work, 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 but they're also like getting this traveling experience that they may have never had the resources to access, to make sure that all those pieces are there so that on both sides, it becomes a complete program. And that's something that it's kind of, when it's good, it's good, and when it's not, it's not and we really erase all that. So we've seen massive success because we put those two pieces into the equation with with extreme intention to make sure that we're not sending cohorts out that aren't going to really have these transformative experiences that aren't going to benefit because it does take a lot of resources to do these sort of trips. And that by the same toll that these communities that maybe are kind of new to this concept, they see the promise, they see the excitement that I bring to the table, but they may have very little background in working with volunteer yeah. groups. They may not have that many tourists. They may not know where we're coming from, yeah. from this. So we really want to make sure that do a good job because the work is quite critical. A lot of these places, like in the cloud forest, we're seeing like massive, massive species out.
1: Yeah. Why
0: massive, massive species out, lots of erosion, lots of abandoned land. We're seeing these problems come out. And when you do good, you can really, really do good. But if you're not bringing the right energy to it, it can kind of always put up walls. It can make it even harder for the next group of people that are outside my organization to help the equation. And it's cool too, because we're really bringing this multidisciplinary, multi-voice think tank to these sites, which I think that's part of the problem is that, as we said, the environmental sciences really needs to embody this environment of ideas, this full scope, global idea space that everyone from different fields, from different walks of life, has an equal stake in deciding the future of our environment and and when you bring that diverse culture of ideas and thinking through the emerging technologies team tackling this and the other technology or from different people from different disciplines or different walks of life you really bring a lot to these communities that maybe aren't seeing such a robust constant rotation of developing professionals come in there to lend their expertise and to lend their energy Mm. it's really cool stuff i absolutely love it. It is such a passion project for me.
1: (laughs) I can tell. I can tell it is like spitting off the screen. I love it. Ah. How, and I think, yeah. So one more practical question that I had. So um, so, right. So one of these things, uh, what woofing also does wrong is just this idea that, you know, we can completely create this new world based purely on, you know, volunteer hours, which is, I think one of the important things is that you're actually paying the people that go on these trips. Where is that money coming from? Is that the partner organizations that are then paying to have that work done?
0: For my organization? Yes. Yeah. It's mostly me.
1: <laughs> you're paying them.
0: It's mostly my own funds donated to the students. Really? Yeah, we have had some luck with some small grants. Some of our partners have been generous. We work with Waimea Valley Botanical Garden Hawaii, for example. They do a very generous donation for us working there for several days. We have a couple of family funds that donate some money to our operations. But it's largely been me donating to really develop this thing because it's, it's Mm -hmm. new and it's not yet established. And it really takes a lot of energy for me as well as resources for me, which I'm really happy to contribute. I think it's a really meaningful and necessary piece in this equation. So uh, I'm more than happy to contribute my own funds to these students and to these initiatives.
1: Massively. Yeah. And grow it and hopefully to the point where either through donations or even through just, you know, increasing the market demand for this kind of work that the market pays for Mm -hmm. it itself. That's the dream. Mm. So um, speaking of which, where can people find you online and find out more about the Grow Externships?
0: Sure. I You can just go straight to our website. I don't know if you want me to put in the chat, but it's growexternships.org. Uh, there's application to apply on there as well as plenty of information on us. Probably the easiest place to find me personally is on, on LinkedIn, but you can find on all the major social media channels, Grow Externships has an Insta or on Twitter and whatnot. The posting is kind of in spits and spats because we're usually just doing it during the cohorts. Um, We have some fun stuff up there. And you can just reach out to me directly. I'm the executive director of it, and I'd be happy to talk just as enthusiastically with you, if not more so, to any potentially interested people that want to learn more about the program and potentially apply.
1: Awesome. Brilliant. And uh, your other life as head of Emerging Tech, uh, where can people find out more about that?
0: You can email me directly at max.learner at parks.nyc.gov. A real cool trick of the trade. If you know any government official's name, you know their email. <laughs> so I have discovered this, yes. To, <laughs> so you can email me directly. If you want to take a tour of our green roof, the Citywide Services Green Roof is really an amazing thing to hold, especially during the growing seasons of the spring and summer and the mm-hmm. earlier parts of the fall. If anyone's in New York,
1: tour. the next coming yep. months. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll definitely, I'm planning a bit of a US trip myself in the fall. So I would definitely love to take you up on that.
0: It's a date. And if you can't make it or if any of our partners can't make it, uh, we can do a virtual tour as well. We're really flexible. We're again we're not doing this in any like procedural manner. Anyone mm-hmm. soup to nuts, students, scientists, diplomats, researchers, businesses, we get requests for tours on a near daily basis from people from all walks that. of life. We're happy to coordinate and we'll, we'll make it work, whether it's got to be on a weekend or it's got to be virtual or you have a group of 30 people, or it's just one person. That's just really curious. We'll, we'll make sure to slot you in because it, it really, a lot of the stuff we're working with again is kind of on the cusp of being viable. And it's just that education piece. We often find ourselves. Hmm. And that's why I was really excited to be on this podcast. And I really appreciate you giving this platform. A lot of just talking about the stuff and gaining it kind of into the verbiage of potential things that people can look into when they're building a building or when they're choosing a career or when they're looking to modernize their city. It's just knowing these key concepts and knowing that these things aren't so abstract, these aren't so pie in the sky that a lot of them are very inexpensive, very accessible, very quick to deploy. Mm -hmm. So having this sort of conduit to really get information and to see these things in action that doesn't feel so exclusive, doesn't feel like it has a hidden agenda to it. It doesn't cost anything. It is really valuable for the environmental science. So I'm really proud on that side of my professional life to be able to coordinate that. I really am always happy to talk with people and to, of course, bring them into my practice, if not just bring them in as a visitor and potentially bring them in as a partner if they want to work with or develop a pilot together. It's all really part of this evolving puzzle of sustainable sciences.
1: Amazing. So that's a bit of an open call too, for anyone that has uh, a technology that they're working on that they feel might be useful in the internet of nature space to reach Mm -hmm. out to Max and see if it might be a fit for NYC parks and beyond. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, Max, I will leave you with one more question, which is the question that I ask all of my guests who come on the show at the end. And that is, what does the internet of nature mean to you?
0: Hmm, that is a really good question. Uh, I'll I'll say to start this off that uh, though I'm not surprised that this is the last question. I haven't listened to anyone else's answers, so I haven't been like conditioned to like have good. something in I line. Good, I think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you'll get my raw take on this. I I would say for me personally, this idea of the internet of nature, which I think goes well with a lot of the questions we've talked about and concepts we talk about, uh, maybe exiting the like purely literal digital space, not talking about computers, but internet or in this interconnected sense that all these disciplines, that all these professionals, that all these people, that all these countries have a lot of interesting ideas, of course, and diverse needs and different geological, geographic things going on, different projects different pieces of the climate crisis hitting them in different ways. The internet of nature is that despite the broad range of scenarios you might find yourself in because of finances, because of geographic location, because of the amount of people power you have, because of the amount of professional background or academic expertise you have, that we really do have a global community working towards sustainability, working towards ensuring that nature isn't this nebulous concept, that nature isn't this abstract or fleeting thing that we're like constantly just seeing ebb away from the world. The internet of nature is that through opportunities like this, through free ways that we can share information, through the amazing people like yourself that are so passionate about this field that they're willing to really put themselves out there and dedicate their professional lives to propagating this knowledge The ideas are out there. There's, of course, some sorting to that. There's, of course, some selection in terms of what options make the most sense for you specifically, for each site specifically, but it is not so far away. I feel like we have this fear and doubt about the environment, that the curtains have been drawn, that the world is doomed, that the environment is just done for, that climate change is an inevitability. There's, and with good reason, like it's depressing to see chaotic headlines about the environment, about nature, about systems failing, but there are people like us out there that really care about this stuff that are really willing to dedicate significant portions of their lives to do a lot of good, if for nothing else, for the sake of good and for the sake of the planet. And the information is all out there and the vast majority of it, if not all of it, in through some conduit is probably free. So The fact that we have this kind of internet of nature to with the motivation which i think is just ever increasing because of the call to arms to help the environment and because of the popularity of nature and sustainability is really really getting to this amazing critical mass so i I applaud you for running this podcast i'm really excited to be part of the fourth season been very eager to get in this mix for a long time And I see this program, of course, because of the namesake, but also just generally that we have, we have correctionships, we have the Parks Department, we have your podcast, we have all of these new budding academic fields and these interesting new degrees. There's a lot of ways that you can get into this more broad sense of people are really actively trying to share information about the environment because people are enthusiastic about it, because people have a lot, a lot, a lot of solutions, and because people are willing to put in the work So it's kind of to one of the early points, just connecting the dots. We just like when you log on to the internet on your computer, you have to figure out what website you want to go to. You have to figure out what search term you want to do. You have to do that in real life, too. You have to sort through the internet (laughs) that being the grander cosmos of all the ideas and people out there. And you have to choose the bits and bots of relevant nature because nature is big. Nature is not just this one static thing. It's not just a rock. It's not just a puddle. It's an ecosystem. It's a global ecosystem. It has so many pieces of flora and fauna, of live and of inert elements. You have to choose what's relevant to your challenge, to your problem, to your location, to your puzzle. And it's really just a matter of connecting the dots. And through the intern of Nature, there is inevitably a solution out there. And I just think, and it's really kind of the food that gets me so amped about stuff. So there's just more and more people that are really excited to explore that internet of nature together, to do this field work, to support public green spaces, to dedicate themselves personally and professionally to the sciences, to sustainability, that I, I really have a lot of hope in this field and in the future of our planet. And I think that's something we really need because it's very easy to get doom and gloom about this stuff. It's very, very easy to see it chaotic is. and depressing headlines about this stuff. And and it's just so wonderful to, on the flip side, see all the do-gooders out there that are really trying to flip that script and and not to let that get snuffed out by how often we focus on the negative. There's a lot of internet out there to explore. There's a lot of nature we have to save. And there's a lot of information that we can kind of link to make that puzzle very, very doable.
1: It's all about connecting that complexity at the end of the day. Absolutely. right. Well, thank you, Max, for coming on all the way from Japan. This was incredibly fascinating and inspiring. Thank you.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. Want to learn more about the Internet of Nature? Subscribe to my biweekly newsletter at nadinahala.com. I'm looking forward to bringing you another great guest next week. As always, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review if you learned something new. The best way to support us is to share this episode with a friend or a colleague. Wishing you a great week. This show is an Unbound Media production.